1: Coming up on today's show, why solar-powered trains could be the future.
2: What we are proposing to do is connect solar PV generators directly to the traction system that powers trains
3: on electrified railways.
2: And the new super-slippery substance which could
1: vastly reduce water waste.
3: We put this synthetic coop onto both surfaces and we find that it used 90% less water to remove the residue of the synthetic coop.
1: Hello, I'm Alok Char, the Economist science correspondent, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first... When virtual reality began to appear in computer games in the 1990s, it was tipped as the next blockbuster technology. But so far, that hasn't happened. It's fared reasonably well in gaming and in the research and development stages of innovation, but it's certainly not the success that many might have imagined. One problem that might have slowed the progress in VR is something called cyber-sickness. Ken Kukier spoke to the economist Sri Mupidi to find out more. He started by asking her to define cyber sickness.
4: cyber sickness. is the physical discomfort that a user might feel when they're exposed to VR. And so this could range from eye strain, for example, but also could be dizziness, nausea, or some people even are known to throw up after uh, cyber sickness. And this can sometimes even last a few hours.
0: Wow, that sounds really terrible. So what I'd like you to do now, Shri, is put on this VR headset that's in the studio because I don't want you to throw up on me, but if you throw up, that's fine. <laughs> Let's see what goes on. So I'm passing you over this VR headset that I have handily right here. It's a cardboard box with a smartphone inside of it. And why don't you put it on? And you're doing so very good. What do you see? Describe it to me.
4: I see... Oh, okay. Ah, it's moving really fast. There's fish. and They're swimming uh, through... I think a so, fish tank.
0: So it's an economist VR film about the oceans.
4: I see high seas and moving my head.
0: That's very good.
4: I see lots of different. I can't even. Ouch! I'm going to close and, my eyes a bit.
0: And how do you feel right now?
4: I have starts of a, the beginnings of a headache already. I'm going to take it off.
0: Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> no, put it back on okay. in the name of science. <laughs> Okay, no, I'm just kidding. You can take it off. Okay. So that's a bit of a problem. I wonder how much of that is VR versus uh, an early version of a uh, film or a producer's Android phone. Nevertheless, let's talk more about cyber sickness. Do we know what causes it?
4: One theory is that there is a mismatch between senses, and this is the sensory conflict theory. So, for example, you might be running through a forest, but you're actually sitting just down on your couch with the headset on your face. And so it's a similar to the motion sickness, that, for example, that a user might feel or a driver might feel in a car, whether they're on a boat or even on a plane. And so your vision is fixed on something stationary, but your peripheral vision in your inner ear, which controls kind of your balance and your spatial organization, detects movement.
0: Okay. And are some people affected more than others?
4: Yes. There has been actually studies where women are four times more likely to experience cyber sickness than men. Uh, Younger children also are more prone to cyber sickness, as well as people who, for example, might already be prone to motion sickness or have eye strain or just trouble with their ears.
0: Okay. So I can understand the other categories, but not women. Why would that be the case?
4: So this is the theory that another researcher actually pushes forward, where he believes that it's more due to how women hold the weight in their body and their center of balance. So because women, for example, hold their center of mass at their hips versus men might hold their center of mass at their chest, this causes women to sway more often. Um, so women are actually more prone to motion sickness. So if you're on a boat or, for example, in a plane. And so this might explain why women are more prone to cyber sickness when they encounter virtual reality environments.
0: Okay, does it have something to do with the way the games are designed or the headsets are designed as well?
4: Yes. Another researcher found that The virtual reality headsets, for example, the Oculus Rift headsets, or the ones that, for example, a lot of these companies push out with their really high-tech gear, aren't actually calibrated to the size of women's heads. And so they might not actually fit perfectly. Or one thing that they've noticed is that women have smaller interpupillary distance, so this is the distance between your eyes, and it's much smaller than, for example, men. Uh, And so this causes women to experience more eye strain and also have higher likelihood of getting headaches.
0: Interesting. So it's another example of a world designed for men that has to be used by women.
4: Exactly. You can see this across, for example, seatbelts. You can see this when women have to deal with uh, iPhones that are too large for their hands. And
0: pockets, because women's apparel doesn't allow for a a large phone to go into. But of course, they go into all of the men's pockets.
4: Exactly. Yeah. You have to have a wallet or a purse or just have it in your hand.
0: (laughs) So what's the solution? And in the case of VR, the industry has had 30 years to think about this. Why are we still talking about it?
4: So one aspect of it is that men typically dominate product and engineering teams. So 75% of product engineering teams in America are uh, male. And this is also seen, for example, across different entrepreneurs as well as venture capitalists, where men are the ones designing or making the decisions. And so by not incorporating women through the design process, you aren't necessarily accounting for, for example, women's size or women's um, attributes or just like the way that women interact with the world. And I think that's something that is clearly a glaring, oversight on the part of some of these companies.
0: Great. And so what are some of the solutions then?
4: One clear solution is to design better for women. For example, they just need to be able to have a headset that actually fits women's heads and accounts for the smaller interpupillary distance. But uh, on top of that, they need to be testing more with women in particular in different environments, see how they interact, make sure that they're tracking this type of data and making those changes in particular. For example, if these VR headsets need to be redesigned for women. They need to create a completely different headset that fits specifically to women because women actually have a wider peripheral vision. And so that's something that they need to account for as well.
0: So it sounds like where the end state might be is that there'll be VR headsets for men and women because they're quite different.
4: Exactly. Just like how we have different clothing for men and different clothing for women.
0: Okay. If that's the vision, then what's the likelihood of it actually happening?
4: I think designing for women might happen. And I think that is a direction that some of these companies are starting to think about. But in the grand scheme of it, I think some of these companies are just making marginal improvements and people just don't want to be in virtual reality environments uh, when you can have an experience the real world. Um, so I think it might be game over for VR soon, just as it was 30 years ago.
0: It's been predicted for a long time. Mm-hmm. Shri, thanks a lot.
4: Thank you so much.
1: And you can read all about this in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. Next up, when you look out of your train window on your winding commute to work, what do you see? Perhaps wide open fields or industrial sites? More often than not, you'll probably find yourself admiring some graffiti. Perhaps soon, though, you can add solar panels to that list. Leo Murray is the executive director of Riding Sunbeams, a company that wants to use solar panels to put the sun's energy directly into trains. Hello, Leo.
2: Hi, great to be here. So, Leo, just in a nutshell, explain how your solar-powered trains work. It really is just about as simple as you just explained. What we are proposing to do is connect solar PV generators directly to the traction system that powers trains on electrified railways.
1: And give me a picture of what this looks like in a station.
2: You can actually see a real world example of this just outside of Aldershot station on the Wessex route um, outside London, because we've just completed a Department for Transport funded demonstration project. And it's about 100 odd solar panels um, laid out on a piece of brownfield land, that is network rail property alongside the tracks. Then there are three boxes mounted on the wall. And these are solar inverters from outside the rail sector that we're proving that we can use to interface with the rail traction system. How much power can you get out of it? From the demonstration scheme, very little. That's a reality. But what we're doing at that site is we're just proving that we can plug solar into the rail system without breaking anything. And at that scale, it's trivial. It's, you know We're powering lights and signalling. And we're picking up a tiny bit of the load as trains pass. The goal, of course, is to be able to supply a substantial share of the traction load on the system. And the demonstration scheme lays the groundwork for us to be able to do that because we're monitoring the interaction between the solar generators at the site and the traction system. So we're looking at both sides and seeing how they play together. And we also have data loggers installed at five other locations where we've already done pre planned feasibility studies for megawatt-scale solar farms to connect to the system.
1: Project your mind a couple of decades from here. What's your dream for this? Would you want an entirely
2: solar-powered train system? Could that be possible even? There's a misnomer that solar doesn't work well in the UK. It works absolutely fine. It works fine even in the Even on rain. cloudy days, yeah. Exactly, even on cloudy days. But we do, of course, have winter, In the UK, what that means is that there is a technical ceiling to the share of the traction load that we can meet with solar generation because you size your generator for peak generation to all be used by trains. But, of course, peak generation is only in the summer months and it tails off on either side. So the technical ceiling is about 20% of the traction load in the UK can be met in this way. Now, actually, that's the technical resource... And of course, in the real world, there are other constraints. There are land use constraints around the substations that we need to connect to and things. So we think the realistic target, and this is our corporate mission at Riding Sunbeams, is to power one in every 10 trains in the UK with direct supply of solar. Just to play devil's advocate for a minute, is it really cheaper
1: to do that than... Just focus on making sure that the central power stations we have in all our countries are much, much more energy efficient and getting energy from renewable sources.
2: It is cheaper. And one of the beauties of solar power is that because it is a distributed resource, you can generate the electricity where you need it. And that cuts transmission and distribution losses. Generating the power directly uh, where the end user is, You know, helps to reduce those losses.
1: Why has no one done this before? Because it's not hard. So is
2: it? honestly, it's not that. I'm not going to pretend, you know. there, there, so the there is some, and some wires. There's some complex engineering challenges associated with supply directly from a solar generator to a rail traction system, especially one like the UK's, which is extremely heavily regulated. And, you know, everything must conform to very strict standards. So we need to prove that we're not going to disrupt those because if you don't want solar plugging in and then meaning that the lights don't work... When I first had this idea in 2015, I searched and searched. And you can find quite a lot of examples of solar and railways together. So there is a Heritage Railway in Byron Bay in Australia that has a battery-powered train with solar generators at either end at the termini, and the train recharges at either end of the route. Now, it's a battery-powered train. It's not a a rail traction system. Fundamentally, the reason why nobody has done this before is that it's only very recently that the costs of solar have fallen below the level where you are dependent on some form of government subsidy to make the numbers work. So in the UK, for instance, in order to access the feed-in tariff or the renewables obligation, you would need to be connected to the grid and export into the grid. Now, Part of the inspiration for this was grid capacity constraints in the UK. It's very difficult to find somewhere to connect a new solar farm, actually, because much of the distribution networks are at their thermal voltage maximum and can't accommodate any more generating capacity. But there's lots of resource there. And so part of the inspiration for this in the first place was to say, well, we don't need a grid connection. This is purely on its own terms working financially. And so the reason why it hasn't happened before is that they've just crossed the magic threshold to being able to wash their own face.
1: Okay, and just finally, what's next after trains? What can you solar power after this?
2: The London Underground is um, the London is, is Underground. exciting. I see a problem. You, yes, you've <laughs> spotted the problem right away. And actually... Um, what we're talking about here is the above ground sections of lines. So things like the central line actually go well off into the countryside. And so we're looking at some potential locations that we could supply the tube network, which is London's biggest electricity consumer. But of course, land use constraints are quite intense around London. And so there's not that much scope for it. Trams, the system we've proven this summer works absolutely fine for trams. We haven't tried it yet, but um, there's no reason why not. But actually, the thing that I find most exciting at the moment is the potential for electric autobahns, the e-highway, that Siemens is trialling, rigging the slow lanes of motorways with catenary cables, and then trucks with pantographs on the top, so they're hybrid trucks. So when they're running on the wires, they're running on traction power exactly like a train. Now, at the moment, there's some experimental trials, but when you look at the problem of trying to decarbonize road freight, There are very few options that work. You know, just battery technology, they're too heavy, they travel too far, batteries are not going to do it. And Germany have pretty much concluded that the right way to do this is these electric highways. Now, if we do that, imagine that we've, um, you know, there are thousands of miles of arterial roads in the UK that are major freight corridors that would be suitable for this. And In that scenario, you know, that's exactly the same problem as we're solving on the railways.
1: Well, I look forward to seeing these electrified uh, lorries in that case. Leo,
2: thank you very much. Thanks so much.
1: Last week on Babbage, the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson offered a chance to win a signed copy of his book. He asked the following question.
0: You're the first human to
1: ever have an encounter with an alien. And... By stroke of luck, the alien knows English, (laughs) or knows knows your native language. What's the first question you would ask it? We had an astronomical number of responses, all of which we read and enjoyed. Many of you said you'd like to take the alien for a drink. Others said they'd like to know what the aliens valued. One of our runners-up was a listener who wanted to ask the aliens, "'Can I leave with you?' And another came from a listener who said they'd ask the aliens, "'What do you love?' Now for the top prize. We actually have two signed copies to give away, so we've got two winners. Our first comes from Gillian, who'd ask, Are you as afraid as I am? In her response, she said that she thought it would be a good way to break the ice. Plus, she says she knows she'd be scared out of her mind, you and me both. And our second winning entry comes from Stuart, who would ask, How may I help you? He said, that it's a simple question, but one that would provide crucial information about the aliens' culture and how best to greet them, seeing as there's probably a strong chance that more of them will be arriving very soon. Congratulations to Gillian and Stuart. We'll send you both copies of Neil deGrasse Tyson's book, Letters from an Astrophysicist. Thank you as well to everyone who got involved. And for those of you curious to know what Neil deGrasse Tyson himself would ask, here's his answer. I would say... um. Is there a problem you see here in society that you have solved on your planet? Our thanks to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, And finally, did you know that humans use more than 141 billion litres of fresh water every day just to flush our toilets? That's nearly six times the daily water consumption of everyone in Africa. How can we stop wasting so much of our vital water resource? Researchers from Penn State University in the US might have an answer. A new type of ultra-slippery material. They call it LESS, which stands for Liquid Entrenched Smooth Surface. When this is used on toilets, for example, they estimate it cuts the amount of water required to flush waste by 90%. So how does it work? Taxing Wong is an Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Penn State, and he's part of the team that created the substance. Hello, Taxing. Hello, Alok. Let me start just by asking you, can you tell us about the coating itself? What is it made from?
3: This coating is a super slippery coating that can put on toilet surfaces or glass surface that can repel human waste, such as urine, feces, and bacteria. And this coating is made of two parts. The first part is a nano scale hair that is permanently attached onto the toilet surface. And the second part is a lubricant that is infused into the nano hair and adhere to the nano hair structures. And the combination of the nano hair and the lubricant makes it super slippery and nothing can stick to it.
1: So you said nano hairs. Am I to imagine it's like a sort of fine forest of little nanometer sized spikes or something?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And
1: what makes it so slippery?
3: The nano hair itself, because one end is permanently attached to the surface and the other end is just moving freely. So the nano hair itself is already very liquid repellent and a sludge repellent. And when it is infused with a thin layer of liquid lubricant, it makes it even more slippery because liquid itself is really mobile. Anything that is sitting on top of a liquid layer is inherently very slippery.
1: Hmm. Is it hydrophobic at all?
3: Yeah, it is hydrophobic.
1: We've had hydrophobic substances before. How does yours compare to other people's hydrophobic materials?
3: Ours is much more slippery. Most of the other hydrophobic coating, they are based on pure solid material which means that when liquid or other sludge-like material, particular sludge-like material, if it's attached on this solid hydrophobic coating, it appears to be more sticky. But because for our coating, we have a leno hair infused with this liquid layer, when a sludge-like material is sitting on a liquid layer, it just sees the mobile liquid underneath, and that's why it is really slippery.
1: And so how much more efficient is it? We've heard numbers of something like, you know, you need to use 90% less water. How do you achieve that? We
3: put our coating on a ceramic substrate, which is a typical toilet surface, and compare that with uncoated ceramic surface. And then we use two tests. One is we measure the adhesion of synthetic poop. So we make our own synthetic fecal waste in our lab. That
1: must be a fun project.
3: That is a fun project. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, the first test is we test the adhesion force of the synthetic poop onto the coated surface versus uncoated surface. And what we find is with our coating, it has 90% less adhesion to the synthetic poop as compared to our regular uncoated ceramic surface. That's the first test. The second test is after we put this synthetic poop onto both surfaces, and we find that for a colder surface, it used 90% less water to remove the, the residue of the synthetic poop, versus for um, the uncoated surface, it requires a lot of water to just remove it.
1: I mean, that's a radical difference. And given how much water we waste flushing toilets all around the world, that could make a huge impact. How do you turn this into something that actually gets onto the toilets of the world. There are millions, billions of toilets and, you know, none of them have this yet.
3: Right now, this technology is being commercialized by this startup company called Spotless Materials. Because um, as a professor at university, uh, publishing paper is very important, but having this technology widely available to the public is as important. And that's why um, this startup company is commercialized this technology. Is it an expensive thing? It's all relative, right? For example, they are selling this kit, which is about 20 dollars and you can put it on about three to six toilets with that coating and you can last for, I can use for like a couple months with that coating. Toilets
1: are one thing, but... One can imagine other uses for this. Have you thought about where else you could use this combination of uh, these nano hairs and liquid lubricant?
3: Any surfaces, you don't want things to stick on it. You can use this slippery coating. One application for autonomous vehicle, because autonomous vehicle relying sensor to see the surrounding. If the lens is contaminated, then that poses dangerous, right? Because they don't see the surrounding. So you always want to keep the glass clean. Other application is, for example, a wind turbine. Um, there was one previous study showing that if insect is attaching on the leading edge of the wind turbine, it can reduce the power generation by 50%. So that kind of shows that having a surface self-clean or keep itself clean is very important.
1: So a potentially huge range of uh, uses. Taxing, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thank you very much. Nice to talking to you.
1: And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Selling a little or a lot?